welcome to the Nine One B Praise. I am Jack, and I am Joe. Yeah, sorry, I kind of mucked around with the the usual rhythm we have going there. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, I know. So, so much for like you know, like a straight, like you know, a non-camp beginning to this podcast. I know we we have to be highly camp now. Yeah, yeah. Well, hello and welcome. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I've just now just I mean, admittedly, the, the two Nymons on the cover of this artwork are probably the campus Nymons on their of of the entire species. Are you for real? Have you seen the horns of Nymon? The way they ballistically no. go across the set. I mean, uh, this is true, but I feel like, at least with the normal Nymons, they have that, yes, hello. <laughs> I feel like the Nymons on the cover of our uh, podcast, I just would be like, hello. <laughs> Imagine if the horns of Nymon, Nymon, sounded like us. <laughs> oh, so this is the great journey of life. <laughs> uh. I can't even remember what the Nymons say. I'm trying to remember. Oh, you did a quote the other week. You'd be like, oh, you dare to talk of me of failure? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I hope that's what you say to people at work anytime oh. they like let you down. I oh. walk across that shop floor balletically like a nylon on every shift. <laughs> I oh sorry, this is, podcast has clearly interrupted us in the middle of a very funny conversation. Yeah, sorry, that was, I yeah, so we're we're here again this week after a, a bit of a break. Uh, my apologies, uh, I was absent last week, but that gave Joe the opportunity to talk to himself for two hours. I was it was joyful. I, I got to uh, wax lyrical about Colin Baker for an hour and a half. Ah, oh, there's nothing better. There's there's nothing. Th- think of all the things you could have done, and, and that was still be my at the very top of rot it. for enjoying it. Come on, you know who that is, right? <laughs> but we are. Uh, to be honest, you you lagged just so badly just for a second there, oh, so I have no idea. What I was you said. I was Fabian, the police commandant. Lang, are you receiving me? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it's got my favourite line of all time. Thou craggy knob. Yeah, that was the first thing you said to me after you recorded it. You were just, you said something like, I was just in awe of thou craggy knob. Well, I mean, how did they think they could get away with that line? No, no, Eric, Eric, <laughs> come on the podcast and tell us, explain to us. Oh my God, I saw something online earlier. Sorry, we will get to what this podcast is about in a minute. But I saw something online yeah. earlier. It was a record that somebody had done. They'd superimposed Eric Sawards' face on it, looking really grumpy from one of the DVD extras. And the title <laughs> of it going around it is Eric Award. What's a word with you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the poor man. He he just looks like one incredibly grumpy t- tortoise. I thought you were going to say turd. Tortoise will do. No, tortoise. Uh, tortoise is a, a probably a much nicer comparison. It is. Um, he is incredibly grumpy though. Like let's be honest. <laughs> I've never known a man 
blame another man for so many of their own creative choices. As corroborated by another man by the name of Ian Levine. Oh, wow. The triumvirate of JNT, Eric Award and Ian Levine. No wonder the 80s was such a success. I, <laughs> yeah, uh, so, the success that they were. But anyway, which, you know, anyway, um, <laughs> we, 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 are, uh, we are here to talk about something. In fact, <laughs> Joe and I have been chatting for a bit. Uh, <laughs> we're here to talk about something that's very useful. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, well, we've just been chinwagging for about 45 minutes because mm -hmm. we just haven't caught up in ages, but we will finally knuckle down and uh, get into the uh, subject matter this week. Uh, but before we do, <laughs> delaying us yet again, uh -huh. what, what, is your, what is your quote from the brain of Morbius? Oh, my fabulous Elizabeth Slater, Sarah, who has been blinded <laughs> and puts a little like curtain shawl over her head and says, you know, I could always sell flowers, couldn't I? Lovely fresh violets. <laughs> I can't remember what she says next. <laughs> is that taking the mickey out of blind people? I'm not entirely sure it is. Is it? Uh, I don't know. I do love it as well Possibly. when she says, what is it? Um, there's a monster made of butcher's leftovers. That's a great line. Yeah. Oh, you used it already. Oh, you can use it next week. Oh, go on. What's yours? Um, mine, actually, before I get into mine, did you, did you, I can't remember, did you do an I'm on quote for the, Twin Dilemma podcast? No. Ah, so you can, you can say the butcher's, the butcher's shop one counts for last week. Oh, can I do one quickly now? Because I have a great line oh, for yeah. Twin Dilemma. Okay, you ready? Oh, go for it. It's Perry in episode three. Uh, was Perry? It yeah. In the Twin Dilemma. Oh, right. Sorry. I thought we were talking about the Brain of Morbius. But yeah, the oh, Twin Dilemma. Go. Perry being in the Brain of Morbius. We are now six minutes into this and we still haven't introduced our topic. Um, no. Perry going, um, what is it? I will. I'm not a learner. A, a paranoid personality like you. Shut me up. There you go. <clears throat> you you really captured the cadence of Nicola Bryan's voice for a second there. It was quite impressive. You've forgotten all about him. By the time you've stopped congratulating yourself, he'll probably be dead. Perry! Yeah, that's that's, um, I, 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 that's pretty good, Joe. Okay, Have you got time for a big finish? Well, you know, if Nicola Bryant ever wants to give it up, I'm there. What's <laughs> your brain of Morbius quote? My brain of Morbius quote comes quite early on, which is um, when Sarah says, coming, uh, it was like, coming? And the doctor goes, no, no thanks. I'm just going to sit here and practice my double loops. <laughs> is that where she's like... Yeah, it's just like it's just like no. I'm just going to sit here. I don't. I, I don't really know, and I don't really care. So there. Uh huh. Why don't you come on out and show yourselves? Oh, it's just like no. There must be something here. Some dirty work that they won't touch with their lily hands. Lily white hands. But I won't do it. You hear me? He has a funny line. He he comes out of the gate screaming because he. He, he comes out going, come out, meddlesome, interfering idiots. <laughs> Mind you, I think Colin Baker could, could tackle that line as well. I, oh, I'm sure he could. I'm sure he could. I'm sure he could t t tackle Chop Suey the Galactic Emperor himself. Mm. Uh, and Tom Baker could easily tackle Val Craggy Knob. 
<laughs> Thou craggy sure. knob. Yeah. Two lines worthy of the great bakers themselves. <laughs> great bakers. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Why are we here today? Uh, we're here to, uh, as promised, about a month ago, perhaps, Ish, yeah. that we that we would um, discuss uh, two episodes from eras we're generally anywhere between ambivalent to uh, ambivalent about to actively um, sort of dislike. You're gonna have to excuse uh, me a chosen... moment. That's my phone. Hold on. You please keep talking. Oh, okay. No trouble. Hi, everyone. It's just you and me. We can say anything now. And I'm not going to get into the topic at all. Maybe I shouldn't. All right. So what we... So uh, we will be discussing... Oh, you're back. Yeah, sorry. I just hung up on him. (laughs) I hope it wasn't important news. Yeah. I I didn't even finish (laughs) introducing the topic. We're now 10 minutes in, so go for it. Okay, so we're going to be uh, talking about stories that we like from eras we're anywhere between ambivalent yeah. to uh, about to, uh, you know, maybe we actively don't like it. I, I would say the era of my story is from I very rarely choose to rewatch. Very rarely. Mm. So since I believe you will be kicking us off why don't you introduce uh your story home again jiggity jig yes that is a quote from the story um is it yeah right at the end when he goes into the tardis he's like home again home again jiggity jig (laughs) so i think we all know that's matt smith's doctor because my you know my startling representation of him yeah, yeah. It's like he's in the room with us. Matt Smith, a guest on our podcast. Well, How I, did you? What are you doing here? I have chosen uh, the Rings of Akaten. I do not want to get the reputation on this podcast of being the person that is constantly trying to defend the full guy. Because so far I've gone yeah. for the chase, time in the round it won, but all of season 24. Um, anything else? Is there anything else that's hated that I've tried to defend? Uh, the timeless children oh i would question whether that's hated that's divisive yeah still still uh we very much sat in the territory of yeah uh episodes with uh anywhere between divisive to actively unpopular uh, opinions mixed reactions yeah we'll go with that um but i uh, i really enjoyed the rings of akaten when it was first aired whilst not thinking it was perfect I, over mm. time it has become it's certainly one of my favorites from series seven which is mm-hmm. a very weak season in my eyes um mm-hmm. and uh, kind of opening discussion on the story i think of those three years of matt smith's three years and that kind of fairy tale approach to doctor who and there was a real attempt to kind of push the show in that direction a kind of like storybook fairy tale um, approach. I think this is one of the most successful, like interpretations of that approach. Mm-hmm. I um, 
Uh, I, I feel I feel like you're about to springboard into a discussion there, and I would love to. Uh, I will just introduce my episode first before okay. it gets about halfway through, and we still have no idea what we're talking, what oh. I'm talking about. Um, so I uh, will be discussing uh, uh, Praxius from uh, series twelve, um, the most recent Doctor Who series, which um, I gather has a bit of a mixed reaction is that correct i'd say it had a more positive reaction than 11 but still pretty mixed Mm -hmm. yeah i um which i don't know i i i i can kind of see why people were were ambivalent towards it um but I, it was an episode I remember watching in series 12 and having a lot of fun with um, because and um, uh, it was a story where I think I think for me personally in series 12 and series 11 a little bit, I had trouble connecting with the companion roster a little bit. I, I remember we talked about, uh, quite a lot about this when the series was actually going out at the beginning of this year. I think I kept going back to you and saying, I just can't get invested in these characters because there's too many of them taking up all the, eating up the runtime and none of them get developed as a result of that. Well, with 12, um, season 12, they keep introducing so many guest characters in every story. Mm, um, but weirdly in Praxis, I really enjoyed it because not only did it have this really frenetic, energetic pace mm, to it, for sure. But um, I, it also, upon rewatching, it, it's quite a good one for the companions, I yeah. think, and the Doctor, um, and the Doctor herself. Yeah, it's a good showing for the cast. Um, I don't necessarily think it's like you know. An outstanding character piece for them necessarily but it's a great demonstration of them in a kind of business as usual kind of episode where there's a big mystery to solve they've all got something to do um, haven't they they've, they've, they're all active in the plot which is something i really like about it but i'm getting ahead of myself let's get into the rings of akaten rest now and uh and by get stuck into it i mean we are just gonna sing the long song (laughs) for the entire podcast well so going back to that idea or that argument of like the fairy tale approach yeah there's there Mm. is i i feel like this is like the doctor who disney movie in that it's kind of very colorful a bit over the top full of songs um it does have like a very disney-esque opening where it's that bit from the end of the world as well where he's like where do you want to go you know the past the future da, da, da. you know it's all and yeah, they're all very yeah. excitable about where they're going and there's a kind of a real thrill of kind of adventuring again uh with the new mm-hmm. companion uh which I, I again i find very disney-esque it's full of colorful aliens and <clears throat> like enormous daft creatures it's like a proper mm. creature feature. This one, I don't know. It just it for me. This really feels like um, it's like Doctor Who for the family, you know. And I yeah. find a lot of Moffat Who is certainly as we push into Capaldi's era, 
it's Doctor Who for Doctor Who fans. Whereas this really feels like it's for Doctor Who for all. I, 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 I think I agree with that. I would say, I think I would put, for me personally, I would put a bit of a asterisk against uh, the show at this time generally being for Doctor Who fans. I would say, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I would say that failure that those kind of the audience for this version of Stephen Moffat's kind of version of Doctor Who is not only um, uh, Doctor Who fans, but more broadly sort of genre fans specifically who are very clued into the kind of games he's kind of playing. Weirdly, I wouldn't point that at the Matt Smith era. I'd say that's more kind of opened out to... I'd say, as as you go into Capaldi, it's very continuity-heavy. It gets quite dark. Um, it's less child-friendly. I think yeah. that they're but kind of like... Um, if the Matt Smith era is, say, early Peter Davison, which is kind of uh, yeah. light and and fun and you know not necessarily very substantial. Then Capaldi's going into Colin Baker's era, which is a bit violent, a bit dark, uh, yeah. slightly less accessible. Um, but this is kind yeah. of like on the just before that kind of all happened, and kind of that the whole weight of Rory and Amy has finally been kind of shifted off, and they've been pushed back in time to New York in whatever year they ended up in. Um, and we have a new companion in Clara Oswald, who uh, irritatingly That's is right. presented as a mystery, which does annoy me. And the f that is my one complaint about this mm -hmm. episode. My one kind of narrative creative complaint is the real weirdness of Matt Smith stalking her throughout her childhood. <laughs> oh, yeah, when he's kind of following her about... Yeah, it's, oh god! Especially when later in the season he's like perving on her. It's just really weird. Yeah, I mean, I think in and I think uh, I actually did have an observation, but I'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, clearly, I'm out of practice. Um, <laughs> but but uh, you know what's weird about Clara here? Yeah, is um, I wrote quite a few notes about her actually. Is that she's so different here to what she would end up being. She is practically a different character to who she is in Series 8 and in Series 9. I would mm -hmm. say that she's presented as a different character in each season, if I'm honest. Would you... Would you... I think that that gets into one of the big discussions about her character as a whole. Would you... But confining it to the context of Series 7 Part 2, do you think she's different in this story than she is in the rest of the series? Yes. I think she really works in this episode. Whereas mm -hmm. I think she gets blander and blander as this season goes on. Um, mm -hmm. Despite the fact that we're told how important she is, it's very rarely kind of uh, backed up with any great evidence that she's as, as spectacular a character as Moffat clearly wants her to be. But here, mm -hmm. she's like, she's wide-eyed, she's asking lots of questions, she's very empathetic, she's a little bit naive as well. She's mm -hmm. really very relatable and she's given like an, an emotional backstory here, which is absolutely vital and kind of ignored <laughs> after this. Which is, I don't know. Um, 
yeah, oh, I was well, there's so much to unpack in in, in this because because uh, you, uh, you are right. The stuff about Akaten isn't that's brought up in Akaten isn't really brought up again ever again. It kind of it, it, it's it's there in the name of the Doctor when he throws the leaf at her at the end yeah. and says you blew you blew into the world on this leaf. And then we but, we see the dad, don't we, in Time of the Doctor. Although, oh, you're I right. I swear he's a different actor. I think he is. I'm pretty sure he is. And, like, Somebody we just... see him, like, across, like, two decades in this story, and he seems to have aged, like, a year. They've kind of grayed <laughs> his hair a little. He's, like, the amazing non-aging man. Oh, yeah, when it's, like, at, at his mother, when Clara's at her mother's <laughs> funeral, <Yeah>. and <laughs> he's still, he really, he's a, you know, a fresh-faced young man. He's probably been exposed to Artron energy because of some wow. temporal shenanigans involving Clara. You know, she's fell through time, all the splinters, blah, blah, blah. Maybe Artron energy kind of threw back across those splinters. Oh, I don't know. I'm making up shit now. Oh, yeah. You're right. Artron <coughs> energy is being projected backwards and forwards simultaneously. Why well, it is a Stephen Moffat uh, season, after all. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, because I, uh, I was going to say, because you you mentioned that you know this is quite a Disney-like story, mm. um, or at least um, <clears throat> in the sense that it's quite fantastical. It's got a real family-friendly vibe to it. There's uh, there's music. Um, it's there's very big creatures and very colors. sentimental, like Disney films as well. Yes, yeah, and. You know, uh, in fact, the alien culture that's you know depicted in this in this story is quite heavily built up on sentiment. Like the core principle of it seems to be a kind of sentimentality. If you kind of squint, um, that whole idea of uh, money having like emotional value, mm. like sentimental value, that's a really lovely idea. That's really de- and frankly, I think they could have done more creative things with that idea than they do. Mm. Oh. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a really it's it's a it's a, it's one of those ideas that you know you see in Doctor Who at its best, where it gives you this tantalizing idea that is utilized, but is also kind of throwaway at the same time. Mm. And it's just a detail in the world. Um, but the question I was going to ask you was that you know, um, uh, so you it it has the trappings of a kind of science fiction. Uh, Doctor Who meets Disney kind of story. Yeah. Uh, and this is in series seven, which was, you know, big on, like, you know, Doctor Who meets dinosaurs. Doctor Who oh, goes to the center of the town. The movie of the week posters, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Doctor Who does a Western. Doctor yeah. Who fights the Daleks, but they're, a, they're insane. Uh, would you say this is in that kind of movie of the week period of Doctor Who? This is Doctor Who meets a Disney film. Is that would kind you of, go so far? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe like something like I don't know, Labyrinth or something like that. Quirky, over the top, oh. funny, nice songs. Yeah, that that yeah, it is very movie of the week. But I think it works. I think it it commits to the to the tone of it. And it just really goes for it. People don't like it. Maybe those people don't like Disney movies. Maybe people don't like sentimental drama. But you can't say The Rings of Akaten does not, like, go for what it's aiming for. And I don't know. 
I think in hindsight, it stands out because, you know, um, in series seven in particular, because it's so focused on this very particular type of story uh, that it's trying to tell in terms of like, you know, we're trying to sell movies mm. as uh, um, we're selling a, a big blockbuster every week. He was really um, aiming it for the American market at this point, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Um, would you say this is the most experimental episode they kind of do in this period? Um, possibly, like creatively, possibly. In production terms, it's stuff like um, Angels Take Manhattan and things like that. But yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I think this is probably like the riskiest. Because kind of tonally, mm. it's a big shift away from what Doctor Who's done before. I just thought earlier, when we were talking about Disney, I just thought, like, um, I've had a lot of people criticise, you know, like the space bikes in this or whatever they are, and the scenes of them, like, oh, yeah. going along, like, looking a bit camp and silly. But when you put that in, like, a Disney category, like the flying carpet in Aladdin, like Falcor the Dragon in The NeverEnding Story... You know, like these really fun ways of getting from A to B in these kids' movies. It works in that sort of context, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, is this an episode which uh, requires reappraisal by adjusting the way you view it? Not necessarily. I think this is an episode which can stand on its own merits. I think people just have to, like, accept that Doctor Who can just be fun and nice and sentimental. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be grim and continuity-driven, and even though there's a little bit of that in there as well. It can just be, like, a, a really fun show to watch. What's wrong yeah. with that? <laughs> like, and, I, and I feel like some of that, <clears throat> at least maybe at the time, some of that backlash towards it might have come from the fact that it was Neil Cross who wrote this, who, you know, uh, at the time and still to this day is most famous for having written Luther, yeah. which is, you know, one of the grimmest detective dramas on the BBC. And I think a lot of people must have had this expectation. as like, oh, they're getting this like hardcore gritty detective writer into the show as the celebrity guest writer, which is one of those other odd this, tropes of the Moffat era. This came before um, Hyde, didn't it? Which he wrote first. I've, I believe Hyde was his mm -hmm. first script, and yeah. then Rings of Akaten was the one he wrote after that, but Rings was broadcast first, yeah. I think this is a better script than Hyde. I think this is a better episode than Hyde as well. Really? I do. I, 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 I think that Hyde has lots to recommend it, and it's one of the other strong episodes of this uh, mini-season. I think the Doctor and Clara in Hyde actively sabotage the atmosphere of it. They wander <laughs> around that being really stupid and silly and it's supposed to be like a horror story it just really doesn't work whereas <clears throat> they wander around this episode being really stupid and silly well this is a really stupid and silly episode so it works beautifully <clears throat> plus you know this <clears throat> doesn't this doesn't end with yeah, end a horror story with you know a love story between two mutants which is just <clears throat> weird it's just weird Hmm. I I don't I don't mind that, but we'll get to hide mm. here at some point in the future. I so you tell me tell me what because uh, you alluded to 
um, Clara's that Clara has an emotional connection into mm. the story, which she doesn't necessarily get. And obviously, and her own history and her own past is in fact the solution to the story. It in fact saves the day. Oh, um, I'll get onto that. Um, I love that. Yeah. Uh, but what 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 <laughs> what draws you to this version of Clara? Well, because um, she's rather lovely. Like she's mm. really just lovely to be around. Um, she's not like a bossy know-all who stomps around with you know overconfidence and you know a lack of ability. She's just really nice. She she befriends uh, Mary Galau and um oh yeah when oh they had that lovely little scene uh where there is are they sitting behind the tardis or just and she's just like you know she and she's really like trying to comfort her when she's off to do this very scary thing um yeah she um she's absolutely loving like just the adventure of being in the tardis going to the alien market she's throwing herself in with the aliens i love the bit where she like starts barking uh, was it Dory? Oh, yeah. She's like, rah, 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 yeah. Rah. you know, like she's she's really having a lot of fun. But like you said, there is that whole kind of um, emotional weight as well, which is quite rare for Clara because I mean they tried to give her an emotional arc in series eight, which I don't think worked especially well. But let's get to that when we get to that. But he, <clears throat> you know, we see her parents meeting. We see her by her mum's graveside. Um, there's the whole thing about the leaf that she carries around with her. Um, he's really, he's trying to establish her with a backstory. And I do really appreciate that. And, and it's one mm-hmm. that, that works and that's, that's very sweet because her parents, despite not being terribly interesting, are very sweet. Yeah. I, do you think this version, uh, this version of Clara has more, this version, sorry, because I realise there are so many versions of Clara, literally in the show. Uh, and when I say version of Clara, I mean, I do mean literally, because, you know, there are many, literally many versions of Clara in this particular time in the show. Uh, do you think this this version oh i see what you did there you didn't mean the versions of clara across the seasons you meant the splinters yeah Yeah. you are witty Uh, (laughs) that's why they pay me the big bucks to be on this (laughs) podcast um uh my my currency is emotional in value um Um, uh (laughs) i so yeah I've been to Akaten too. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, do you think this particular version of modern day Clara uh, seems more reminiscent of the Clara we saw in the Snowman? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I mean they're still quite different characters, but she's as nice and as approachable. <laughs> and I think that's kind of a sensible approach this early in her run to make her as likable as possible. Like, if I'm honest, <laughs> you know, in the next season, she becomes a bit of, you know, an accusatory abuse victim. And that's not a very likable mm. approach. I'm glad they didn't go for that here. Mm. Oh, and a control freak uh, as well. Don't they call her a control freak quite a bit? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I kind of 
bossy control freak, I think is what they call her at one point. Yeah. Um, Somebody whose confidence is far in excess of her talents, I would say. I, um... (laughs) Sorry. I was going to say, you you really spun on a dime there for really complimenting the character to then putting a stiletto through her heart. that's, That's my point, though, is I don't really like Clara as a character, but I really like her here. Mm. If she'd been this lovely throughout, this approachable, I would have had no issues whatsoever. Um, obviously, there are two names in the title credit. How do you think the Doctor fares here? Oh, my word. He is marvellous in this story. This, this is like, this is Matt Smith's, like, stomping ground he's playing comedy and he's playing a bit of fool and he's um like getting close to kids which is just i think that's where his best work comes out when he's working with children um after that kind of weight of introspection in series six sorry i know i seem to be criticizing a lot of the seasons either side here um (laughs) but it's such a relief just to see him having fun and having like a fun adventure with his new companion, this lovely, lovely companion. I, I, I think he's very relaxed in this story. I think this is precisely the sort of Doctor Who story he started in in Series Five. This kind of fairy tale approach where he can be a bit of a clown and a bit silly and a lot of fun. I think I think he feels very at home. And 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 yeah, he like you know the bit where they're. I, 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 where they're going through the marketplace and he's doing all these ridiculous greetings that are in all these different alien customs. And some of them are like tickling somebody under the chin or like, you know, doing like a chest bump with someone essentially. He's like a big kid, Uh, isn't he? But it comes with, with a weight as well because he does know what all the aliens are. So you're like, okay, so he's got a big history behind him. And then he drops Susan's name, doesn't he? And suddenly, like, the weight yeah. of the show falls on that scene. Yeah, yeah, because I, th- I remember at the time, because, you know, this was the season that was uh, predicating the 50th, and everyone was like, what is this? Could this be Susan? Could Susan be back? No, she only ever turned up on Capaldi's desk, didn't she? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what a rewarding character payoff. Um, but he get he gets to but, be completely oh. silly in this, and I think that really plays to his strengths. When he went off, did you see some of the movies he did after Doctor Who, where he tried to push away from this and be like really serious and like a proper actor? I mean, I'd say he is a proper actor. He got nominated for an Emmy for no, the no, Crown. I'm not saying he's not a proper actor. Sorry, that's that's really bad on my part. But like, he was in like Terminator and films like that where he was trying. Oh to be... yes, yes, yeah. Where just, he has to do an American him. accent. I'm so sorry. He can try and buff up as much as he likes. You know, he he is a bit of a goofy actor, um, and this is a really goofy story. So he, mm. do you know what, he, he almost dances his way through the story. I mean, he is doing that crazy arm waving thing and that bloody sonic screwdriver is out every five minutes. But... Yeah, I do. But, but... He is like a ballet dancer at the top of his game. He is dancing through this story with absolute grace. 
And I don't know, because it's one of the things I find really interesting about the Rings of Akatan in particular is that it's an episode that is generally, that has a bit of an unpopular reputation. However, it has one of Matt Smith's defining scenes in it. It has one of his most popular moments. Do you know? Which is the... Yeah, the the speech. Mm. It's... I think that is one of the bravest performances that any actor has ever given as the Doctor because you could underplay that if you wanted to. And he just goes for it, doesn't he? Like, he is screaming at the end of that speech. Come mm. on, baby! Take it out! You know, like, he, when Ryan Reynolds said about Matt Smith screaming at the spaceships in um, Pandora. Pandorica. He does exactly the same thing here, and he does not care whether there is egg on his face at the end of that scene. He is crying and he is screaming. It's astonishing. Yeah, and it's and it and you know he's alluding to it's it's kind of Blade Runner in some kind when he's talking about these things I have seen. Mm. Um, It's very it it has a whiff of you like you know. Uh, e beams glittering in in the in the starlight or whatever it is, it like tears in the rain, um, and he alludes to all these unknowable things. Yeah. But and he invests something it with Doctor Who does every now and again, isn't it? Is is this very kind of poetic language? It's like at the end of Survival, where he's like, people made us songs. No, what was it? Uh, uh, people made of smoke and city made of salt. That is that kind of thing, you know, of, and it's like when Russell Davis like drops bits about the time war that could have been never been wears or whatever that was, you know, that one as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the could have been King with his army of meanwhiles and never was. Oh man, you and your, your memory, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's alluding to stuff that we've never seen in a very poetic way. And the dialogue there at the end of this, in that speech, it is gorgeous. Mm, where he uh, kind of lays out his entire life mm. and just says, take it all, everything I have loved and lost. And I don't know, one of the things, I, I, I feel like we might be jumping ahead here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, one of the things I really love about that speech is that sh- it's like this gargantuan speech. It's enormous. Mm. Uh, and it is written as like, you know, the doctor's big, it's in, it, it should be the doctor's big winning speech that saves the day. Yeah. And yet it's not, no. it's like the, the, the sum of the doctor's entire life, his entire lived it's experience, which is tremendous. And, it's not enough. But then that's the idea, isn't it? It's not a life lived. It's a life not lived. Exactly. But Which you know, I, I love at the I end know. of his speech, he is literally, he's silhouetted in front of that big pumpkin head. And he's just <laughs> defeated, isn't he? Like there's nothing in him. He's emotionally drained. Mm. It really is amazing. And it is. It's like, it, it's like, you know, and I know Matt Smith isn't a doctor uh, that you you have always had the most patience for, no. but it is it is a great moment for him. And like he, like thinking about it, like technically, that is almost certainly just Matt Smith acting in in front of a green screen. Yeah. And even then, and even then, 
with all the CGI. It is still an abstract thing he is emoting to. He is an, a, emoting to an evil sun creature uh, uh, about all this stuff that isn't humanly relatable. He's talking about, like, you know, dimensions uh, that had physics devised by the mind of a madman. They're not things that are easy to emote to. It's all channeled for emotions that are, though, easy to understand. Uh, I feel mm. very connected to him in that scene. And do you know what? Go back. Next time you watch this, yeah, look at him when, after Clara's like, on her bike across to see him, when she turns up and he looks up at her, just look at the shot of his face where he's got tears in his eyes and he looks absolutely haunted. It's stunning. Like, it's wordlessly stunning. Yeah, and I think after that moment, the Doctor's basically drained for the rest of the story. No, he says, home again, jiggity-jig. Oh, yeah, how could I forget? My <laughs> bad. I, sp I spoke too soon. Although, can, um, I, can I say, like, going back to what you were saying about the fact that it isn't the Doctor, it's Clara that saves the day here. I think without being um, too melodramatic, when I watched this a couple of weeks ago, I burst into tears at the end of this story. And that is because I feel a huge personal connection because she's talking about the death of her mother. And I've lost my mother two years ago. Mm. And she's talking about days not lived. And if people can't connect to that, there's something wrong with them that is so achingly poignant and that's what and, saves the day yeah and it, I, in a lot of ways because you talk about how this is in its tone which is quite sentimental mm. um uh and you know it risks it, it, it you talk about how this story is quite risky i think this is a very very risky thing for the show to do because well, it, it, it is like it, it, i know a lot of people criticize this ending for being presumably for being quite mawkish kind of over, and overly sentimental and kind of illogical and kind of magic doctor who rather than but but put it back through the disney lens for a second it makes perfect mm. sense i i wouldn't i wouldn't even put it like that i would say if you if you put it if you understand it through the logic that it's built up that the, the, of, of that whole society that is built up around it. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense that, you know, in a society that has built uh, its customs on emotional value, that this evil parasitic God that they sacrifice everything of emotional value to is then defeated by something of infinite value. You, yeah. which is sentimentally you know something sent that of infinite sentimental value which is more time which is more time and yet utterly more time mundane to... that leaf it's just a leaf mm. it's gorgeous and, and with the leaf in particular i remember you know when the it's it's you know that leaf <laughs> uh when it comes the inevitable back the name, memes that came out after that <laughs> Yeah, I when it came back in the name of the Doctor, I do remember feeling it was a little unearned because they're like, Clara, you blew into this world on this leaf and all that. And I was like, uh, okay. Um, 
And even at the beginning of the story, when Clara's dad is like trying to propose to Clara's mother, like, this is the leaf. This is this is the leaf. <laughs> it's a little overdone, uh, isn't it? And who even well, says, it, oh, my stars? Like, come I was gonna, on. I was, I was literally just about to say this. Who is nearly hit by a car? And they go, oh, oh my stars. stars. I'm going to say it now in all in all life situations. I um I have a friend. This is a complete tangent, but I have a friend who um uh doesn't who really doesn't like Aaron Sorkin. Um, this is a hell of a tangent. Uh, the writer of the West. Oh, yeah, he uh, he really doesn't like the writer of uh, the uh, Aaron Sorkin, who obviously wrote The West Wing. He thinks he's a hack. Okay. And Aaron Sorkin now, ha- Aaron Sorkin now has a masterclass. Um, and in the trailer for his masterclass, Aaron Sorkin says, uh, "Nobody walks into a room and says, God damn it." So my friend has now been walking into rooms saying, "God damn it," <laughs> just despite Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> then I'm going to drop "Oh my stars" at some point in this podcast. Yeah, so you're just going to do "Oh my stars" no, in this so in this exact podcast. Wait for it. <laughs> We'll put a time, once this is published, we'll put a timestamp for it. Do you know what's really interesting about that climax is mm. the difference between Matt Smith and Jenna Coleman's performance. Now, I've been a little critical. I do think Jenna Coleman is a stunning actress. I don't know if she's always been married with the best materials, Clara. But when it works, it really, really works. And it mm-hmm. really works at the end of this story. But Smith is... Uh, like a hundred yeah he's crazy over the top emotional and then jenna coleman comes along and it's all restraint it is isn't it and it's more emotional for being restrained and i've often found that with a lot of drama the more restrained that emotion is the more it upsets me and that that really Mm -hmm. got to me where she's like you know this leaf is the most important leaf in human history I, just, I think it's a cracking scene for her character. Yeah. And that's, I suppose, as far as those performances go, that's a bit of a rare instance because you've obviously got Matt Smith going 100 and then you've got Jenna Coleman dialing it right back. Mine and there's no good. guarantee that having some, one actor, one, two, one of your leads going so far in and then the other one pulling it right back would work opposite each other but it does and what's Mm. incredible is obviously this is her first story in the TARDIS and she's given the opportunity to uh, solve the episode so she's been you know she's clever enough to realize how this world works and then she uses her backstory to do it it's a very satisfying episode for for Clara Yeah, and you you know you've actually just reminded me again, slightly a bit of a tangent, mm. but less of a tangent than Aaron Sorkin. Um, uh, I do remember because um, uh, I you know we talked a little, we touched on how um, this ending is quite uh, is very risky because it is so blatantly emotional and even over emotional. Mm at the risk of being mawkish and melodramatic, it does remind me of what Russell T. Davis was actually actually said about the ending to his miniseries that came out last year, Years and Years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because um okay uh i'm just going to preface this spoiler alert i'm just about to talk about the ending of years and years if um uh, uh you want to watch that i would advise skipping like maybe a couple oh. seconds ahead i've forgotten it so go on um it's when um uh, uh i'm trying to remember a name the character is upload essentially <laughs> essentially uploaded into hydrogen oh yeah uh, right. to become immortal and the, the story ends with her declaring i am love um uh, uh which is a very strong choice and i remember russell t davis saying in an interview um you know it takes a lot of guts to commit to an ending like that to commit to something where you know you are committing to something that emotional and not just that emotional something so emotional that it is that easy to mock it it's a bold choice to go for uh, for that kind of tone for your ending uh, and it really requires like quite quite strong confidence in the writing and and your own nerves to do that but i would say this is as bold as that like, <clears throat> emotionally visually this is as bold as the ending of years and years it it does risk being mocked it could easily be mocked but if you in get fact, behind it is, it, 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 is, it is frequently mocked but if you can kind of get behind it and into the logic of this setting and the tone of the story it makes perfect sense like you said mm. i speaking of the world itself what what do you make of uh, uh to the other major components of this story namely uh big old pumpkin head parasite god man oh and... now it's just such a lazy thing to criticize <laughs> the, the big old pumpkin head and if you will indulge me i have prepared you for this but yeah, yeah you, you know, did people, brief me people declare this as the most ridiculous the doctor who's ever been i question whether those people have actually watched much doctor who because newsflash it's a really silly show <laughs> it is so i have created a small list of things that are sillier than old pumpkin head from the end of this story are you ready uh definitely not but go okay. for it so the web planet features ants versus moths with human beings in space. in space the web of fear features robot yetis in the underground okay in the mutants um kai mm -hmm. mutates into a flying rainbow fairy who floats along a corridor no for Does real he? for real he's, he's literally the pride flag as a fairy floating across the set mm -hmm. god god maybe i need to see the mutants now in the creature from the pit tom baker gives a blowjob to a big green blob <laughs> we do not speak of this we do not enlightenment features sailing ships flying through space actually with um uh green blowjob um uh it should be said that tom baker actually speaks into it right yeah well um, yeah but he also like blows into um, it as well doesn't he yeah also um did you did you have something for pertwee there yeah that was the mutants oh yes of course um 
all I, I thought I just inherently my brain was like, surely he should have mentioned the time monster. Oh, oh well, the, the, the entirety of the time monster is mm. just silly and over the top. I mean, look, and Carnival of Monsters. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, Enlightenment. Uh, yeah, well, that features sailing ships flying through space, which, you know, is a silly idea. It's a really fun one, but it's silly. Um, it's as stupid as those Spitfires in space in uh, Victory of the Daleks. The Rani features people being, uh, sorry, Mark of the Rani features people being turned into rubber trees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um, forgot that. Yeah. Oh my God. And the tree, the tree grabs Perry to protect her from the mine. The tree won't hurt you, Perry. Um, oh. I, th I didn't write anything down for McCoy, but I'm sure I can think something on the spot. The Candyman. There um, you go. Yeah, there you go. What time do you call this? Um, what else have we got here? Hang on. Farting Slovene I... from Aliens of London. I mean, you know, it's it very, very silly. Um, let's see. The moon, which turns out to be an egg, which lays another moon yep. in Kill the Moon. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we call a new moon. Uh, possibly the silliest scene in all of Doctor Who, the TARDIS towing the Earth back to orbit in The Stolen Earth and Journey's End. And uh, Russell. I'm I was trying really hard to think of something outrageously silly from Jodie Whittaker's era, um, but actually, obviously, the Cyberheads from Ascension of the Cybermen win out. All of those things are as stupid and as daft as old pumpkin head. <laughs> I rest <laughs> my case. I uh, I do remember there is quite a funny line there, isn't there, where they first see uh, big old pumpkin head. I'm just going to call him that for now. I'm going to call him big old pumpkin head. That's right. That's what he is. Uh, where the doctor goes, uh, I've seen bigger. Are you really? <laughs> Are you joking? It's massive. That's a great line. I wrote that down. Yeah. That's a really funny There's line. A there, there are some very good lines in this story, aren't there? Yeah, throughout, actually. Um, I think... There is one issue... You, oh, sorry, go on. You've got a line. No, no, I was just, just going to say, I seem to remember that being there being quite a funny line. It was like um, where he's describing the significance of the festival, and he's like, it's not... And he basically says, it's not a big holiday. It's more of your, like, mid-tier, mid like, holidays, like Pancake Tuesday. <laughs> I like it when he's uh, wakes up like the old pumpkin head and just goes, mm, I think I may have made a tactical boo-boo. <laughs> he's really fun <laughs> in this. But no, I was going to say, yeah. there, is, there is one real issue with this episode, and mm -hmm. uh, it is obvious in certain points, and that's the budget. Like, it really, it really wants to be a Disney movie with a Disney movie budget, and it has a Doctor Who budget, which means it looks better than a lot of telly, but it can't quite like I, I will always um, respect bold ambitions and they are extremely bold in this episode. But like, there's a bit where, you know, where Mary's singing and it's supposed to be this huge amphitheater and, you know, they've got about 50 extras, which is, you know, they've, they've kind yeah. of tried, tried to superimpose them many times, but you can kind of see mm. the same robot appearing um, in that yeah. audience. And, you know, the green screen with Clara on the bikes. And it's, 
it's kind of not quite as um, visually impressive as it wants to be. Mm. But it's going for it. it. It really goes for it. And I'll always say, you know, God, the web planet goes for it. And I admire the web planet. Invasion of the Dinosaurs goes for it. And I really admire <laughs> Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I remember when they were marketing this series in particular, um, uh, they were trying to, they would, it was like, this is the episode where we do this. And I remember with Rings of Akaten, they kind of went, you know, for this episode, we did, we we made an entire planet for, of aliens for this for this episode. That was one of the selling points. Is that the BBC made a whole planet with a whole planet of a whole host of different aliens? It basically, the Moss Eisley Cantina from Star Wars. If yeah. it was a whole planet, I'd say this is the most successful attempt at that because there are so many different aliens in this, and there's so many throwaway aliens in that market. If you have a good mm. look. There's probably about 20 different aliens that they've created just for that marketing yeah. scene. And he's pointing them all yeah. out and we're kind of cutting down. And they're, they're quite imaginative. The trouble is, is they're in this like cramped studio instead of it being <laughs> this vast space, you know? Yeah, I seem to remember, you know, when when they get to the actual amphitheater mm. and I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. There's the this is BBC Who. stage. <laughs> but like... Also, like the 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 ambition of the doctor silhouetted against pumpkin face i think that's really lovely i think that that is striking oh yeah it's a very nice tableau isn't it it's a very striking image yeah also i don't know why for some reason uh, it's actually when they're in that amphitheater when they're getting ready to listen to the Sarah, uh, to the to the big uh singing uh, uh and i don't know why it's when the doctor explains kind of the whole point of the festival and clara asks doctor um uh is it like i think she says is it real and the doctor kind of pauses and just says it's a it's a nice story yeah that's, uh, that's, and, I, and for some, that's that's a really interesting take on religion isn't it yeah it's because it, yeah, it's about their faith and their religion as well that's kind of what and, i say about the bible it's a nice story yeah, and I don't know. It's it's a, I don't know. It struck me just at the time because obviously, I think we can presume the Doctor as this kind of roving intergalactic scientist is probably either somewhere to uh, somewhere between an agnostic or an atheist, depending on the writer. Uh, so, but it it did strike me as quite nice that even though he probably doesn't believe in the customs of and the faith of this but respects of this them. world he respects them. but he he respects it and you know and he starts he, singing doesn't he, he? he's and happy he, he takes part he does yeah Badly. it's really sweet actually he's, he's really awkward <laughs> which is very funny he's like trying to yeah now he's like really awkward <laughs> uh yeah and he's i think this is the first episode well, I, it's not the first episode, but it, it's the first episode where this becomes a recurring thing, where he keeps wearing Clara's, sorry, Amy's glasses oh, as well. And yeah, I like that 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 visual of him wearing the glasses. Do you know what I just said? Yeah. Awkward. I think that would be that's a good word to describe Matt Smith's doctor for me. Very awkward. 
And sometimes that works really well, and sometimes that yeah. doesn't work at all. Not so much. Um, having mentioned the singing, uh, oh, what do you think of the singing? Grief. Well, she's tone deaf, isn't she, the girl? Honestly. Where's Go and watch the fan version. That woman's got a beautiful voice. Yeah. I do like the do song. You... I do like the song. But you know what? Points for effort. There's this crazy obsession with kids in the Moffat era, isn't there? You can't mm. you can't turn a corner about bumping into some irritating little shit. <laughs> oh sorry. Oh. I <laughs> oh what a what a good way to what a good spot to put to put the music. Um, well, I, I would point I, out Angie and Artie. Yeah, um, but as far as the music is concerned, aside from, <laughs> as you say, the the young singer being a bit off pitch, um, a bit off pitch. Uh, um, do you, do you, what do you think of it as far as Murray Gold's music is concerned? Oh, it's beautiful. No, it's, it is a, it's a beautiful song. It is overly sentimental, but then so much of Murray Gold's work is overly sentimental. Um, I think it's a lovely piece. And the music throughout, the music straight after the long song is the same piece of music that they play during Matt Smith's final speech in Town of the Doctor. And that's one of Murray Gold's best pieces of music. That's right. They do. I think throughout, um, uh, uh, certainly after Eccleston, there, there is a, a certainly an attempt to marry a very definitive bit of music with each Doctor's regeneration. Mm. Um, so with the Tenth Doctor, I mean, it's obviously Vale de Kem. I mean, I Decem? Decem? I'm not sure. Decem. I mean, I love it, but it's so over the top, isn't it? Yeah. The beautiful Latin words of, of Murray Gold I said, um, Can I just say, I sent that piece of music to a friend who loves opera, but doesn't, has never seen Doctor Who. And I went, where do you think <laughs> this is from? And she started naming all these really sophisticated operas. <laughs> oh, like, oh, it must be Parkner. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to tell you. She's like, it's beautiful. I'm like, yeah, I know. I, uh, yeah, you get Veil something or rather with David Tennant. You get a reprise of reprise reprise uh, bleh, don't don't um you get a repeat of um uh, the long uh the long song is that what's called the long song mm -hmm. uh when matt smith regenerates and obviously when peter capaldi regenerates you get uh, the shepherd's boy from yeah. uh heaven stent do you know i would say matt smith i think had the best of murray gold um for like yeah. his, for his own music yeah because as soon as uh, Matt Smith appears, it's like that. And it's brilliant music. And then we go into series six, which is, you know, the, whatever that really fun. Oh, oh, you mean series five? Series five. Oh, the Doctor. That's awesome. And then he goes out on awesome music as well. I think Matt Smith has some seriously decent music in his time. Mm. Man, I'm full of praise for the Smith era today.
Uh, oh, don't worry, you'll change it to no doubt by next week. Well, let's uh, let's talk about um, Nightmare in Silver next week then. Oh, let's let's not. I'm <laughs> well, maybe bored. Well, maybe that's an idea. We could do both of the Neil Gaiman stories. No way. What about the Children of the Moffat era? That would be a great idea for a podcast. That's such a weird title for a podcast. Well, there'd be endless children to talk about. What are those two I... called in the Doctor Widow and the Wardrobe? Oh, oh I God. don't even. I haven't watched that episode since it went on Christmas. It's like the only episode. I want to send both of them on a kamikaze mission. They're so irritating. Why? Why is Bill Bailey in that episode? They wasted him. It's Bill Bailey. What about that kid from Night Terrors? Oh, I just want to throw him out the window. About three stories up. I don't remember that kid being that bad. I'm not. I'm not like suggesting that infanticide is the way to go. But with some of these children, well, I think there's a case to be made. Well, you know, hey, you know what? They hit the ground running. They had um, what was her name? Caitlin Blackwood, who played young Amy Pond. Oh, she was excellent. She should have been the companion. Mm. Uh, and then uh, I remember the actor who played uh, Rupert Pink and Listen was also pretty good. Oh, I don't remember him at all. Maybe was that's there a, any children maybe in Capaldi's a... era. Oh, yeah, in the Forest of the Night. Oh, my word. That's the sad. Oh, and that, that girl that appears out of the fairy dust at the end. Like, oh, oh Maeve, Maeve, you're back. Woo! Talk about a bold, sentimental ending. Yes. Yes. Anyway, do you know what? I feel like we should r- wrap up Akaten mm-hmm. and talk about your episode. Because you know what? I think we've we've given it a fair reappraisal there. I, I like to think so. It, like, Akaten is an, an episode I often really go for. It's not one I've revisited often, but it's one I've, in discussion, I've definitely really enjoyed mm. talking about. I think there's a lot there to it. There's a lot more to it than I think people give, give it credit for. I think, I think it's a lot bolder than people think it is. Mm. And I think of that season, I think it's the one that commits strongest to it's movie of the week. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Well, good. Do you think that's one that, um, well you have, I'm trying to remember because, um, look at next week's cold uh, war. Oh, jeez. Uh, you had the bells of St. John tr- essentially trying to do skyfall to do a James Bond movie. Oh, that's a uh, Cause I didn't even get that. Um, which, you know, Spyfall is probably the better example of that. What's Nightmare um, Silver trying to do then? Oh, I don't know. It's trying to do something. Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS? What's that trying to do? Apart from being really uh, awful. Um, I think, do you know, actually, that was what I was going to say. I was going to say, really strange. Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS is an absolute classic. This ends now. I uh, thank you for tuning into the final episode <laughs> of the Nymon Be Praised. I'm Jack. And, and I'm this is Joe. Farewell. Uh, um, no, what I was going to say was uh, I remember uh, in 2013 when these episodes went out, um, 
uh, I remember ever, all of my friends uh, really didn't like this story. I ever was like, that was dreadful. That was bad. I remember midway through watching it, I think it was my drama teacher sent me a text message going, well, this is a, well, this sucks or <laughs> something like that. Um, and then, and then <clears throat> when we got, when I got to, um, I think journey to the center of the TARDIS, they were like, this is great. And I was like, what? Oh, really? The weird yeah, Android like, brother like, thing. It's just like, what? Am I in some? Am I in the dream? One of the dream lords' realities at the moment. I don't know what's going on. Rings of Acton was one of those episodes, those rare times when I had a friend over that's not a Doctor Who fan that I insisted watch it with me. Oh God! <laughs> I remember at the end when I turned it off, and I'd really enjoyed it, obviously. And uh, she went, um, "You have to admire Matt Smith, don't you?" I was like. That's all she said. I still don't know what she meant. Wow. <laughs> For propping up this garbage, I think is what she was implying. Wow, that's um, that's something all right. Maybe you should ask her what she thought. Maybe all this time later, she's going, what did you mean by that? We don't actually talk anymore. No. It would be different. Uh, so, well, so, you'll, so, so now we'll never know. To be honest with you, I think that... that kind of came to an end not long after I made her watch The Rings of Akaten. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to say The Rings of Akaten was a, was the root cause for, for this to happen. Uh, but... Destroys friendships, you know, Neil Cross. Yeah. Well, uh, well, as far as I'm aware, you know, Praxius hasn't ruined any, any of my friendships. Oh, let's talk about Praxius. Yeah, let's let's talk about Praxius. I, um, you said that with a sigh. Then this is your story. I know, I know. Sorry, I don't know why. I, I was I was taking a breath. I know why, because you why? didn't tell me which one, but you did say that you almost chose a different episode, didn't you? Oh no, you did tell me which one. I, I did, I did. I, I there was a point where I nearly changed my mind to go with "It Takes You Away," which I think has a lot of merit to it, mm. and is one of my favorites but i had already can i just impromptu, say one thing i'd already committed to praxius primarily because i think during the break of the last podcast we recorded together in like the th 10 seconds you were just like jack you need to choose a story i was like ah oh, the villa deodat uh whatever and you're like no that's too obvious yeah, like, deodat oh, is um, too it's a great episode i think everybody acknowledges that is a pretty great episode and you're just like, no, it's too obvious. And I was just like, um, uh, Praxius. You know, young fella from It Takes You Away, um, Tubula, please? Oh, yeah. What's his name? Ribbon? That still gives me nightmares. Him being attacked by those horrible moths. <sighs> it's really unsettling. Yes. I was just like, God, maybe people shouldn't write for Doctor Who because they're inflicting this on the viewing public. That is nasty. In a season that isn't really very nasty, that is nasty. I um, but uh, unfortunately, I'm not talking about it takes you away. I am fortunately, however, talking about Praxius. Ah, um, that's got hot gay blokes in it. So, yay! Yes, yay! They are. They admittedly, they are both very handsome, aren't oh. they? Oh my word! And it's it's fantastic representations. Do you think that's the best representation? 
Nah, I still think the best representation is in gridlock with the two with the old married couple. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think the two lesbians in the space car are still the best we've ever got. But, but as two men being shown in a relationship with strengths and flaws. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think so. I mean, uh, there was a part of me. It, it was weird, you know, because there was a part of me that was like, surely, this hat isn't the first male same-sex couple we've seen so prominently on screen. And I, I can't. I, I I'm not sure. Is, you know, I think. Yeah, I think. I, and yeah, the more I thought about it, I was just like, no, there are a lot of side characters. Mm. But never this with their marriage this prominently in focus. Um, it's just so yeah, it's so normally, isn't it? I, it, I, I, yeah, I'd say so. It's presented normally in very extreme circumstances, not just in the context of Praxidius, but also in the context of their relationship, because one is. You know, a police officer on 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 sabbatical, he says, uh, and the other one is an astronaut. Um, and in fact, there is that really quite lovely scene on the beach where um, uh, Graham's talking to uh, talking to um, talking to him, um, and uh, I wrote it down. It's where he says, you know. Uh, my essentially says, you know, my husband's an astronaut. Do you have uh, any idea uh, what it's like being married to someone that impressive? And there's a lovely moment. It's so understated where the camera focuses in on Graham's reaction. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you can tell he's thinking about, you know, um, Isn't Grace. Bradley Wall's so good at those things. He is very good. It's just like, yeah. I mean, I they they seem to constantly be giving these moments to Bradley uh, Bradley Walsh, but for good reason. Yeah. He knocks him straight out the park. He is brilliant, and I don't know. He just taps into the emotion of the scene very well. He did it in um, oh, good grief! I can't remember what the episode is called Demons of the Punjab as well. In that mm. scene with. He needs more moments like that, I think. He gets a lot of very subtle touches because, you know, in Arachnids in the UK, there is that moment where he walks back into his house again for the first time since Grace has passed away. And, you know, it actually, it takes you away. It's all about um, Graham's response to... Uh, seeing Grace again and his uh, the, the the extent to which he's trying to recover from his grief um, uh, he gets even though he, you can always say um, you know Graham can get more of those moments but at the moments he does get and they're, they, thankfully there are quite a few of them he does nail them I mean it does kind of resolve itself doesn't it in resolution So and then Spyfall is kind mm-hmm. of like a fresh start for graham but it is nice that you can like lean back on that backstory again in moments oh oh 100 and it's one of those things that they it, it it's a, it's the kind of detail that works very well in this context because you know the way it's shot and the way it's written 
is obviously meant to remind the audience that, you know, Graham does know what it's like to be married to someone he finds so impressive. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't <clears throat> linger on that grief for any more than a second. Yeah. Uh, it like it reminds you of it and it reminds you of his sadness. And in that moment, Graham does seem quite wistful, but we're not doing the story of Graham's grief again in series 12. Uh, series, that was something that was dealt with for the, and for the most part resolved in series 11. Uh, so, so it's, it's very nice where he's, he's moved on as a character and uh, he's moved on emotionally and as a character. But, you know, it's still the death of his wife. It's still something he carries with him. So it's a, I think that's a lovely detail. Just that whole scene yeah. is beautiful. It's mm, beautifully shot it's, as well. It's a fantastic location. So it's, Yeah. And it's, it's one of the, the only moments in Praxis which really slows down for, for, uh, for a long time. Because uh, you you do get a couple of quiet moments in praxis, but they tend to be quite brief. They tend to be glimpses of small moments, whereas that one's a moment where things really settle for about you know th about a minute or so. I think anybody that pointed at series eleven and said it was a bit paceless, they really tried to make up for that in series twelve. And perhaps too much sometimes, but in praxis, I think they get it. They get they're kind of going for a, an episode with tons of momentum, tons of elements, and I think well, it's directed extremely well. Oh yeah, that's one of the things that really drew me to this story is how frantic the pacing is. Like you are, it, it, that story is telling you to keep up with it, mm. and it doesn't entirely entirely care if it leaves you behind. Um, it doesn't drop its elements though, does it? I, it? There's you watch the first ten minutes, and there's a ton of characters there, and a ton uh, of locations. But it actually, but kind of structurally, it it does take you from A to B to C. You know, it's not it does it's not confusing. I don't think. I don't think so, and you know, I don't think even though there's a lot going on. Uh, it's not. I I wouldn't necessarily say it's overstuffed. Um, there's a lot of different thing components being mashed together, and you do definitely get the sense of the episode. You know, kind of trying to keep them all together. But I don't think there's ever ever really a moment where you see everything like stuff falling out of its hands, like stuff running away from it, um, and which is quite impressive because. I think, because I know, you know, Spyfall and loads of Moffat stories tend to like to, you know, trot around the world and all the galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. This one is going everywhere. Yeah. It's, it, you know, we start, I mean, to begin with, we start in the atmosphere of outer space. Uh, then we go to a supermarket. Then we end up in, Maybe not the best comparison there. Out of space to a supermarket. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, Doctor Who, isn't it? From out there to the mundane. Well, well see, that, that opening is really interesting because, you know, the whole opening passage is the docs, is a little narration for the doctor talking about, like, you know, the essentially talking about the way all life is connected. 
uh, and you see an astronaut crashing through the atmosphere, it, dealing with that crisis, and then you cut to a supermarket and you see his husband, you know, dealing with um, uh, dealing with you know a shoplifter, and it's a detail I noticed uh, uh, on rewatch. It's obvious, like you don't know that on your first viewing, but those that's on it's obviously connected mm-hmm. um, because they're married. And they're dealing with different crises, yeah. but on a different scale, which I thought was a very nice little detail um, of, you know, one of from the epic to the domestic, uh, the through line between this astronaut crashing through the atmosphere, which is epic, and this man who, um, you know, is struggling he's, to adjust to being on sabbatical. Taking like a step down in his job, isn't he? He's... Yeah, the thing that links these two, this epic and domestic scale, is their relationship, uh, which I thought was a very nice detail in that opening. Doesn't it then um, cut to, is it the two doing the travel log? Oh, yes. Um, uh, girl, girls Who Roam, yeah. I think it was. Um uh, yeah, and there's them as well. She's a lovely character, but, isn't she? Um, I forget her name, but the the actress is really good. Oh yeah, it's it's got a really good cast throughout it, and uh, one of the yeah, and it, it, you you get a sense of most of the characters quite vividly, despite the fact that you know this as I was trying to say earlier, this jumps from the atmosphere to uh, out, uh, to Peru, then to Hong Kong, then to Madagascar, and then to the depths of the Indian Ocean. There's a lot of mm. scenery hopping in this, um, which Con- is... Convincingly portrayed as well. <laughs> yeah, like all the different locations have... I mean, they're all shot in different locations, and all, they all have different lightings, like yeah. Hong Kong is... All, all this kind of neon purple, um, Madagascar is, you know, uh, on this kind of orange uh, sun-kissed beach. Um, uh, Peru, you kind of have this uh, these bright blue skies and this kind of thick or- sort of orange sand. Um and uh, then, of course, you go to the Indian Ocean, which is when it gets all like classic Doctor Who yeah. kind of in a studio. I love it that she thinks that that's a, a spaceship, doesn't she? Or she's on an alien planet. Yeah. It, which is, a, I, I don't know, it was a weird character beat for Ryan for a moment there because he's like, he played, it's played quite aggressively. He's like, well, what are you upset about? He's like, it's a friend, you ain't even kidding. But yeah, it kind of segues into my next point. I think this, and we touched about this with Graham a bit earlier. I do think it's a very good story for the companions. Mm. It doesn't um, doesn't uh, Ryan get like a, a, a? It's not like a romance, but it's he gets quite close to the the travel lock girl, doesn't he? He does. I don't think it it gets romantic. I don't seem to remember. But I can just remember yeah, a scene with him in the TARDIS where he he's sitting with her in the TARDIS. Yeah, which is really lovely. Yeah, they he see 
John, Johnson Cole uh, gets he's great in this story. Mm. Like he he like you really like he's I think he's always been quite a good actor in the show. Um, very uh, like very understated most of the time. Like he's very good at really dialing it down mm. and playing the drama. But here, he gets, he really shows off a bit of a leading man quality. Um, I rem- in, in the opening, he's so funny um, uh, when he's like doing the when he's being patted down. Um, he has this real confidence to him, uh, and he's like, you know, when when they're doing the whole have you have you not heard of how have you not heard of you know girls who roam he's like arching his eyebrow and everything he's got like his hands on his hip and it's so funny and he he had one of my favorite comedy moments later on when uh the doctor kind of goes you know oh you know uh we would never have discovered this if um ryan had not brought us this bird this dead bird from peru (laughs) And he takes a pause and he just kind of goes, and he just goes, oh, well, I am here for you guys, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's so funny. He's really good in this Is this story. the one where they're in the warehouse? Does he point a gun at somebody? Is that this episode? Uh, and Graham's like, no, no, don't do that. Like, <laughs> they, they have great moments in every episode, the two of them together. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think that's something... Uh, I haven't rewatched a lot of series 12, but I think that might be something uh, that if Praxis is anything to go off, that might be something I find a bit more with series 12 in the absence of what I was looking for, which was a bit, which was more consistent, consistently meaningful character relations and dynamics amongst the companions. Just look for I cute, will, cute I, moments instead. Yeah, I'll, look, I'll probably find a lot of cute moments and fu- fu- funny banterous scenes. Do you know what, right? This was the episode that convinced me that Yaz was working for the master. <laughs> I remember. I was gonna. I was gonna bring this up because I remember yeah. you. We were talking about this episode, so and you were just like, "Well, I just don't understand." When she's just like, "Oh no, I'm going back for that alien equipment. I'm not coming in the TARDIS," and I'm like. She's going to get that for the master. That's somehow linked into this year's plot because of that scene where they're at the poker table and they're grinning at each other. I, I was convinced from that point on that Yaz was working for the master, and there were like little subtle things where I was like, "That's weirdly out of character." But this is very out of character. Yeah, and I don't know. <laughs> you know, it was very funny because I remember you. For like the next two or three stories, you're like, she's definitely working for the master. <laughs> and then the last one, I was I, like, oh, no, she wasn't. I remember, and you know, when we get to the the Villa Diodati, is it is it is it the Villa Diodati? Yeah. Um, uh, I remember there was a scene. There's that scene where you know, um. Uh, I think Shelley asks, Mary Shelley asks Yaz, like, who's this person, this amazing person you're talking oh, about? Yeah. And you were just like, she's talking she's about talking the master. Because like, she says my person. She doesn't say the doctor. 
She says, my person. So I'm telling you now, that's going to be a twist in series 13 when it's just Yaz and the Doctor. She was working for the Master the whole time. <laughs> we'll I, um, you can be smug it, now. But um, I think you but you are right. It It is a moment that I think in the broader context of series 11 and series 12 does kind of jar a little bit at first because you're just like, Yaz, what do you mean you're just going off and yeah. doing your own invest because you're just kind of like i think she hasn't really the idea is, isn't it that she's trying to be like the doctor and, yeah and i kind think of it's her stepping up to in, the plate yeah but it it does feel a bit weird i suppose if you're kind of looking at uh, on that path it makes more sense and i suppose she goes off with her own mm. companion doesn't she she goes off with one of the girls who wrote yeah, and they, you know, in fact, hit the teleporter, and she, she's like, "Well, we are girls who roam." And those are really fun scenes as well. They've got a nice little yeah. dynamic. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and it's a good one for the companions because they're they're all very fun to be around. Uh, they're all quite proactive in their own stories. They're all. It's one of those stories where you know you have these three different plot lines going on, and all of them are kind of leading them yeah um so i and it's kind of funny because you know you have the doctor's plot line you have yaz's plot line and then ryan's plot line and graham kind of just fluctuates between, between them. all of them yeah uh he's like he's initially he's with um yaz in hong kong and then he gets shuffled off to um madagascar with the doctor and yet still manages to steal the show and it still manages to steal the show. But no, it is a good showing for for them. Uh, Yaz, for Yaz, Ryan, and Graham because they all uh, do definitely take them uh, take, take take quite a proactive role in the story. Mm. Uh, although the person who takes the most proactive uh, role in the show is a hundred percent Jerry Whittaker's Doctor. Oh well, let's get into that in just one second. Yeah, and I, it's a very good story for Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. She storms onto the screen. Literally. Yeah, like her first moment is her basically shouting at people, like, get over here! <laughs> it's great. But don't you, don't you feel like she's really, like, hit her groove here? Like, she's oh. very confident. Oh, definitely, uh, and it's a. It is one of these stories where the Doctor has this big scientific mystery to solve, and you're kind of. She's barely keeping up, uh, keeping up with it as it is, and the audience is kind of with her on that journey. You're like you're, she's like about five seconds ahead of where the audience are. Yeah. Uh, so it, and it's very fun to be around her doctor as she's kind of in full puzzle solving mode. I do think it's very though, much... don't, don't you think with Doctor Who that generally should be the case <laughs> that the doctor doesn't have all the answers, we are just a little bit behind the doctor. I think that's a good place to be to tell a good story. Uh, 
I would say yes. It is also very hard to write that at the same time. Well, I've never tried, but okay. I, I take um, word for it. Um, but no, it, it certainly makes her very fun to be around. And she, she is quite, you know, uh, she's quite doctorly in this story in a way we traditionally associate with some of her earlier incarnations. Um, like, you know, uh, I think she, this doctor has a particular reputation for being kind of, you know, a uh, very over energetic, very empathetic, very kind. Whereas here she's very commanding. Uh, and more than that, she, there's that moment where, um, uh they've you know they've gone into the hospital and i think it is it um Gab uh, i think it's yeah gabriella uh who is the one of the girls who roam mm -hmm. uh sees sees her uh, sees the other the other girl um what's her name i'm gonna check the uh yeah jamila uh-huh uh, uh, sees jamila with the inf with the praxis infection oh it's and terrifying isn't it Oh, it's awful. It's it's quite it's really quite gruesome. When I saw that in the trailer, um, I thought, oh, this is gonna be creepy. Uh and you know, and when Jamila essentially crackles up and Burst. explodes like a rice crispy. <laughs> I love it. Um, you do like rice krispies, don't you? Do I? You described someone as having a face full of rice krispies the other day. Did I? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, go on anyway. <laughs> anyway. I've lost my train of thought entirely now. Um, Burst like a Rice Krispie, the Doctor's reaction. Yeah, uh, yeah. the Doctor just kind of breezes over it. Mm. And it's not because she's being callous. It's just because, as the Doctor so often is, she's got a bigger problem to deal with. And it's just prioritising... Um, uh, the thing she needs to get on with so she did which it, you know is a very doctorly thing to do but feels very is feels uh like a pro a progression for jody whittaker's character i felt like there was character. like a, a lust for the mystery you know which kind mm. of overrode the um yeah her usual kind of sentimentality there's a really great bit where she's with the, the scientist and she's like oh i love a scientist and they're doing all that kind of sciencey stuff and she's just in there and having a great time. Mm. And uh, yeah, and so she's and she's flung at all these different elements constantly throughout. Um, and the doctor's having a. You can tell the the doctor in the story is not only intrigued by the puzzle, and you're you you're, you and she really grasps you with her in, with her intrigue. Like you follow along with her because she's so very fascinated by the oh by this puzzle um uh she also sorry no no, no, no. Uh, you go as she kind of as each revelation hears is what i like the fact that she's always presented as being very intelligent and having a lot of knowledge so the bit about the when the gaius comes up she explains what that is you know uh when she realizes it's a virus she explains how that works like she hasn't got all the pieces at the start, but when the pieces sort of come together, she offers the explanations, which is quite nice. Mm. I think the only time in the story where she drops behind 
is when Suki uh, Suki um, reveals herself to be the villain. What? And ha, her, ha, ha. I was the yeah. villain all along. <laughs> yeah, and the doctor's exp- explanation is that it's like, oh, I'm always a sucker for a scientist. <laughs> I quite like that, though. Yeah, which um, it, has really got a handle on the exposition at this point, though, as well, and making it fun and snappy, which I think the Doctor yeah. has to be able to do. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that's something the era initially struggled with. Yeah, for sure. Because, um, yeah, you know, there you would, in, in Series 11, get a lot of these techno dumps, which were... Uh, very dense and at at some points not hugely entertaining. Mm. Uh, I think the one I keep thinking about is that one in. Um, uh, I'm, I'm suddenly for some reason I'm suddenly drawing a blank on the the Saranga conundrum. Oh, I quite like that do- one. Is it the one about the the generator or whatever it is? And yeah. Like, oh, I quite like that scene. No, I thought it was just like oh, we stop it. We come to a stop to talk about. Particle physics. She's frothing over the science. Um, whereas, but whereas here, um, you know, the doctors. The, the, it's it's one of the things I found quite interesting about the story, which is that the story doesn't stop very much to give you detailed explanations. Um, there's a lot of explanations, but it's not. At length. Oh, Jack. Um, that's the that's the magic of Doctor Who, though, right? If you give oh, people yeah. enough time to think, then the whole thing just falls apart. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, it, it like it gives you enough of an explanation to give you a sense of what's go- going on, but it doesn't get too stuck down in it. It doesn't get bogged down in exposition, mm-hmm. and it just keeps moving. Yeah. Um, and and you know. Uh, I'm sh- almost certain. No, in fact, I am certain that the science of the story oh. does not is Ball, bogus. Yeah, uh, but it is. It is. I think it's the pl- plausibly presented, though, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah, where it's like, and it's an in. It, uh, what I, it was a very uh, what I find interesting about Praxis because you know it is another one of the environmental stories of series twelve. Oh, I have a question um, to ask you about this in a minute. Go on. Um, and I think what and I I found it interesting because obviously you had Orphan Fifty Five, which had a strong environmental message to it. Um, Benny. That, I mean, the, that wasn't the message, but that Benny! was... Where's my that, Benny? Sorry. Uh, I was sending you voice messages through and that for ages after that episode. Uh, Benny! <laughs> Did you see the one where someone cut together all the Bennies? You could just, oh, you know... It's so you could do you could just someone needs to has somebody edited that so it's in time with Benny and the Jets by Elton John. <laughs> you probably should. Benny, it's the one where she where she goes off to die and she's literally like waving. Benny, it's so funny. That's the most funniest moment ever. <laughs> oh. Benny and the Jets. 
Um, it's spoiled uh, Bernie Summerfield for life for me now. Because <laughs> every time oh, someone says Benny, I just think of her. <laughs> Sorry, environmentalism. Hey. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, what? What was I even going to say? I have no idea. Oh, that was it. Um, uh, the thing I found interesting about Orphan Fifty Five is that it ends because they're the two very environmentally mm. conscious episodes. Uh, one is concerned with climate change, and one is concerned with uh, plastic, pollution. Plastic pollution. Right? Plastic yeah. pollution. Yeah. Both of them very strong environmental messages, and they're, admittedly, they're both episodes that cop it a little bit. Well, I mean, but... I on the back of this, I went and uh, did some research on plastic pollution because I didn't know much about it, and I learned a great deal. So that's Doctor Who kind of giving me the seed I probably wouldn't have done beforehand, and I have made a few changes in my life actually to. Um, oh to recycle more efficiently on the back of this. And that's entirely down to watching Praxis and seeing well, the, that the, the the Gaia and the pollution in the sea. I thought that was made well, up. That that's real. That those those things are actually there with all that gathering of pollution in the ocean. Yeah, well that kinda we'll we'll have to get in touch with Pete uh, Pete McTai <laughs> and let him know that he's done some good. Um, but yeah, actually, that kind of segues into what the point I was going to make, uh, because with um, Orphan Fifty Five, as I said, it's got this this very literally this strong message to it. it. It ends with the Doctor basically addressing the companions and the audience to, you know, yeah, uh, you can do better, save the planet. Yeah, you can do better, or you can do, or you can do worse. That's right. Uh, it's. Um, which obviously some people really hated. Um, in fact, a lot of people viscerally hated. I'm assuming um, those people have not watched the John Pertwee era. Well, so, well, actually, see, this is the thing I was going to say, and the reason why, I, and I, and although obviously climate change is one of the things that worries me the most in my everyday life, but I think in praxis, I. I didn't feel I didn't feel it. It didn't feel as didactic no. um, as it does in um, uh, uh, Orphan Fifty Five. If even if it is n raising an issue that's no less concerning, uh, and I think it and it was because I was just like the way it tackles the problem feels like an extension of you know the way the Pertwee era would address environmental issues. Um, uh, through the lens of, you know, kind of very eccentric science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, you've got the Green Death and all with like toxic maggots and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> yeah. Um, uh, invasion of the dinosaurs, uh, it's done via a government plot to pretend that there's a spaceship going to a new planet when they're actually going to roll back time and wipe yeah. everybody out. I mean, that's just mad science fiction, but it kind mm. of gets the point across. Yeah, and I think as I was watching the conclusions of the story, I was kind of like, it's not only, you know, an extension of the Pertwee era's approach to raising environmental concerns. It's an extension of the kind of modern version of, of a Pertwee, Pertwee environmental story, which is 
the Zontaran stratagem and the Poison Sky. Uh, I mean, I say it's more effective than those. I, uh, they they do functionally have very similar resolutions, um, since uh, you know yeah, both of them do. essentially feature yeah. uh, the Doctor sending up an antidote into the sky that cures the pollutant. I feel that Praxius has uh, more um, stimulating visuals uh, that really made me think about pollution. I'm thinking namely of when they come across um, what's supposed to be like a beautiful vista and it's just covered in garbage. And mm -hmm. the, the, the shot out from the ocean of all the plastic gathering. Like, I, it just, they were just such powerful visuals that like you know the the doctor waving his arm around in a bit of smog in the Sontaran stratagem it's i just don't think it's as potent <laughs> well it's that and it's also just i think the nature of the threat is different because in the Sontaran stratagem and poison sky it is not the villain isn't necessarily the environmental damage it's the Sontarans co-opting human pollution um, for their own ends, whereas Praxius is about this, this uh, pathogen which lives off and, in fact, flourishes in a pollutant world. So, sorry. It's, it's plastic in particular, isn't it? What was that? Is it plastic in particular? Yeah, it's a, it, it lives off plastic. Because then she has that um, fantastic line about, oh, it could be the Autons, which is probably what everyone at home is thinking, you know? Yeah, it would be a very creepy Auton story. Yeah, but sure. um, But uh, no, it, um, it, so the monster itself, uh, you know, it's not... Because the thing you, I think the thing you get with a Sontaran stratagem is that you get the sense of humanity kind of being let off the hook, where it's just like, oh, we're not doing the polluting. It's Sontarans, right. essentially. They're, you know, they're the ones who made the Atmos machines. They're the ones who activated them and turned the planet um, disgusting. It wasn't humanity's fault entirely, whereas in Praxis, it's like, no, we've got this deadly virus yeah. that is that is just thriving on this planet because of course it would because there's so much plastic on it you know the bit in practice uh, that really got under my skin and interestingly i use that that expression was where they said about the plastic that exists inside of us you know like the, the oh tiny yes the microplastic like, and then i looked that up and i was like oh my word okay <laughs> This is all genuine. Yeah. This you, might be science fiction, but this is all based on fact. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, and you even have, you know, the doctor talks about microfiltration for a second. Mm. Uh, about, and even she, uh, and you have that moment where Graham is like, that's not a real word. <laughs> that's me in the audience. Yeah. yeah. What are you talking about? Um, so yeah, I I think are you trying to say you're it, right. it makes its point more compellingly than Orphan Fifty Five and more less controversially, maybe less confrontationally. Certainly less confrontationally. I'm not sure if it's necessarily. I think for me, it felt more effective because the thing with Orphan Fifty Five is that 
you know, it's presenting a vision of the future. And that always feels, and no matter how much you can play the, oh, this could be the, the future you end up in, that's still always a possibility. And in science fiction, it's so easy to, to dismiss, especially if it's going to be, you know, you're going to turn into monsters. You're going to turn into these big, you know, teethy monsters. Whereas, you know, in Praxis... It's now, it's, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's happening now. It's over, it's over pollution now. Uh, so it it's effective in the sense that, you know, it it's something drawn from the present. Do you know what's sad? Uh, is that, what's that? You know what's really sad? In 1974, in the Green Death, it was talking about this, the pollution of the planet and the things we could do to try and prevent that. Here we are, 40 years later, and we didn't listen. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, go. it's gone a lot worse. Yeah. Well, we just need clever old Doctor Who to save the day. Barry Lett should have been louder. <laughs> no, you couldn't get more uh, bolder yeah. than giant maggots, could you? Let's be honest. I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I don't know. I think that it, it is one of the main things I like about Praxius, which is that it has all these things running through it. It has a strong environmental message opposite uh a really kind of creepy horror sort of story um opposite um uh this really interesting scientific mystery for the doctor to unpick opposite uh all this lovely character work that's going on and a really nice romance story as well that's yeah which you know comes there's to something... a, a very hot resolution in this artist may i say Mm. Oh, you mean when they? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean when they they make out at the end? There's just something about seeing a bit of rough snogging another bit of rough. <laughs> that is, I never thought I'd see that on Doctor Who. Oh, uh, here we are. Here we are. What a have, wonderful day! I do have a question for you. Yes, this is a story featuring a female Doctor uh, with two companions of color. We're featuring a gay romantic subplot and an environmental message. Is this the most, I don't know, what do they call it? Woke? Is that the word they use? Doctor Who yeah. story of all time. And is that a problem? Because I don't think it is. Um, What's wrong with being diverse? Uh, I mean, I, in, in my opinion, nothing. But, you know, I'm sure there, there will probably be someone who takes an issue with that. Like, like there's, there's I, people screaming there shouldn't be a female Doctor. There's people screaming <laughs> that uh, there shouldn't be gay characters on Doctor Who. There's people screaming that there shouldn't be environmental messages. Why not? Well, see, you know, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine a while ago because I think I just gone and seen a movie which i adore it's one of my favorite movies at the moment which is the personal history of david copperfield by uh, armando ianucci um which uh has is an adaptation of the child and uh, it's an adaptation of the charles dickens book mm -hmm. uh, and it has a uh, and it's very um it's it, it, the casting is very diverse um 
in that, like, you know, Deb Patel uh, plays the lead character in Victorian London. While we're talking uh, and, about hotties. Sorry. Mm, and um, uh, I got into a, I went and saw it with a friend and we got into this conversation about, like, you know, about, you know, um, putting this, uh, putting priority on diversity in casting. Mm-hmm. And he was, and I remember he told me, you know, uh, it, he was talking about, he, he, he said something along the lines of, you know, if you're casting something, uh, because he's saying, I think he said something along the lines of, it, it, some people say, you know, what is di- the diversity in casting bringing to something like you know what what does casting a woman bring to the doctor and it's like sure uh, but also what is it necessarily taking away if that's your issue i don't think it's taking away anything i think as long as it's a talented performer yeah that exactly is, and that... Uh, that is interpreting the script in an interesting and engaging way then it doesn't matter if they're black white male female gay straight well, exactly. Uh, I, so, like, so you know, are we, are we talking about the internal prejudices of individuals? Then that's the problem. I, uh, in, in my opinion, I I would think so. Yes, um, because I don't I don't really see a problem with it. Really? I and I think all those elements within the story work exceptionally well. Uh, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, uh, and you know, sometimes Doctor Who doesn't always uh, get it right. Uh, like true. you know, we've mentioned like you know the fat gay Anglican Marines oh, as an example. Or, or what's um, his name, Rick James in the Mutants. Stop or, it! Or um, or even um, you know, in Resolution, when you have the security guard who's just like, oh, you know, my boyfriend's always saying. And representation uh, of strong female characters. Yeah, so Doctor Who doesn't always get it right. Oh, there's a time machine! A bloke and clocks more accurate than this TARDIS. At least it's accurate twice a day, which is more than you ever are. You know that is. I was trying to... I'm Tegan. Of course. I was going off your Tegan voice there. Thank you. I'm available Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's a problem at all. And you know, the show has been doing this since definitely since Russell T Davis came back anyway. It's um, true. But what shocks me is, is that's now been pushed onto like, um, channels on YouTube and that's been picked up by some media outlets as well. And that really worries me because I'm like, well, the, if the material, if the, if the episodes aren't, dreadful then the problem is the reaction to it mm-hmm. and that it's the reaction that's getting the news rather than the episode well i i think something i find is that and like you know I, I i'm obviously not trying to insinuate that like you know if you dislike this episode then you know you no, think this that now you're so if you don't like, like, you know, there's plenty of the Jodie Whittaker era that, you know, I'm not a pity, I'm not hugely invested in. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to 
any of the any of the things it's trying to do in its casting Terrible or anything like that. Jackie Shanahan, obviously. Just I, on the back um, of that statement. I'm but, writing uh, my YouTube channel now. No, I'm sorry, but I'm I don't know. I, I, I feel I, I, sometimes it feels like to me that there there is people there seems to be people equating like casting as not as it's like casting has affected the quality of the stories themselves Which, as opposed to the quality of the make? stories themselves being if there are issues with the storytelling then it that is its own separate thing of it course. is not caused by that i mean you know the wrong actor can misinterpret a good script as much as you know um a, a well cast actor can raise the game of a terrible script but you're yeah, right those are two very separate the casting and the writing that's two completely separate things and i don't know certainly in the in some of the in some of the more vitriolic discussions of the of the jody whittaker era um i tend to try and avoid them yeah so as, as do i because you know th there are plenty of you know healthy and reasonable discussions to have about the merits and the the flaws of the era um but like if, uh, you, if you kind of dip your toes into those youtube channels and and things like that it is literally like taking a bath in shit oh yeah and if you dip into some of those more venomous corners it it it, it does definitely feel like some people's saying that you know the problem like the problem with this era started with Jodie Whittaker being cast and all problems stem from that rather than, you know, anything to do with, you know, script writing being its own separate thing and performance being its own separate thing. Um, I mean, you know, the, I know that, you know, the Whittaker era has more so than any other era taking quite a conscious step to, uh, diversify itself in its writing room, uh, in its, uh, you know, in its lead cast, in its guest cast, um, in the supporting cast. It's tried to do that across the board. Now, see, and I've heard objections to that as well. Why shouldn't you do that? Because you're opening the door to potentially a new type of Doctor Who. You know, and the show has always tried to do new things. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, exactly. And, you know, uh, I, there can never be a problem with inviting new writers in. Um, Sorry, I feel like uh, I've taken us into very dangerous waters here. Yeah, I don't know. But <laughs> I think, but, like, my point is, is within all of this wokeness, Praxis is a really strong episode. So <clears> it <throat> proves that if Doctor Who is currently woke, then it's doing it well yeah and you know i feel like i'm not i'm not sure if <sighs> i think when people talk about like this whole woke thing yeah uh uh joe has just given me the cue for one minute so i'll see how quickly <laughs> i can uh, I'll tell you talk what, about i'll end it here and pick it up one second <laughs>
I <laughs> I think when people uh, generally, but at least uh, just keeping the focus on Doctor Who in particular, mm-hmm. I think when people throw throw around I, words like woke in a hugely accusatory tone, um, uh, it, it, it's done with the implication that that there is there's some because there's something political going on. Right. Um, um, uh, and in in some stories that you know is is can be quite true since you know in Orphan Fifty Five it is directly addressing climate change, which is one of the most political issues right now. And you know even in the BBC sort of behind the scenes documentary stuff material that they post on YouTube, there was a video they uploaded why why young people are calling. Uh, the 13th Doctor, Space Greta Thunberg. So, uh, Sorry, that's quite funny. It is. And I was just kind of like, oh, they're really going for it here, well, Essentially, they? in Orphan 55, she did look at the camera and go, how dare you? How dare mm. you, people? I am. Um, but... Um, <laughs> that's, sorry. that's really funny. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I... <laughs> But, uh, so, and, you know, anytime there's a discussion about wokeness, it's always tied up in a question of political correctness is the other accompanying term. Well, I don't know what um, you're talking about, Jack. Donald Trump told me that climate change is not happening. God, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did Donald Trump come up in our podcast? He told me on Twitter. Oh. So clearly it's not happening. He's the leader yeah, of so the free world. Yeah, so clearly we're just talking about pure fiction. That's so there's right. nothing political about it at all. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I'm tr- sorry, I'm trying to remember where I, <laughs> where I was. Um, but in, in the case of Praxis in particular, um, uh, it, it raises a political topic uh, and makes a case for why we need to address it. Mm. But it's, I don't think it's, you know, critiquing one's personal politics, I think. It's not critiquing mm. the audience's personal politics necessarily. It might be, criti- I think it's critiquing, you know, the way we live our lives as far as using plastic is concerned. But it's... But then I, I think don't think talk- you can approach this sort of story without doing that. Oh yeah, and entirely. But I think that's, I think that's one of the things that is really wrapped up in this discussion about wokeness in the Jodie Whittaker era, which is that it's not just a question of politics in in these stories. It's about uh, what the show, what the show is apparently saying about its audience's personal politics. Right. Um, or personal choices. This, Do you think that's the issue? I think, I, I, in some ways, yeah, I think so. I, mean, um, I don't want to be accusatory here, but if you are unwrapping a piece of plastic that is recyclable and you're just throwing it in a regular bin, you are part of the problem. And I think we all do that. So I, I think, I think, 
this episode can point at most people and say you are part of the problem. Mm. Um, but and it, I think you know, and Doctor Who, and as we've said, Doctor Who has done this before. Mm, it's times. not because, and you know, some people say that are we living in the most woke version of Doctor Who yet? And I don't know, maybe in some, possibly in some ways. We are, I mean, but that's at, not... Look at the McCoy era. They, they took down the Conservative government every bloody week. Well, exactly. It's just like, if if you think this is a radical departure f- from the show prior, mm. have you watched the show? Series one yeah. literally, wow. literally had... Series one literally had a skin... an implied skin suit of tony blair drop out of a cabinet mm. and in uh the probably the best episode of flight to entirety the the podcast they made a fantastic parallel between um john sims master and tony blair and uh bombs raining down on afghanistan and the toplophane raining down on london it is a such Ooh. a compelling argument it's clearly when the way they described it, it's clearly what because Rusty Davis is not afraid to make strong political statements. Oh, absolutely not. And some of his uh, strong political statements in stuff like years and years, you see the bones of that in his Doctor Who work. Beware the madmen. Uh, yeah, for they will laugh us into hell. Oh, such a brilliant uh, I so yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, it's, you know. I've I've made a case here that the rings of akaten um you know has a ridiculously silly ending but doctor who's always been silly and you're making a case for the fact that praxius is political but actually doctor who's always been political i, I think maybe people just <clears throat> like to moan well yeah you know i think one of the things that you get with a show like Doctor Who, which is so, which, you know, the whole premise of the show is this thing can go anywhere, is that, you know, therefore is <laughs> Doctor Who can be literally anything. And therefore you can, if you want to, you can read almost or expect just about anything from it. But it's so, always going to be rooted in what's going on now or has gone on before because that's our experience so even if it's told on some alien planet in the future like monster of peladon that's about a freaking miners strike that was happening at the time yeah and you know i think part of this is already just built into the doctor's character by this point because the doctor is always it is well established to be this deeply empathetic character. It will it will always be a bad day if you see, you know, the doctor siding with a government instead of the people protesting against a government. That's not what. It's what some doctor people said about really Pertwee, does. wasn't it? That Pertwee was like the only conservative doctor when he was like, <laughs> you know, I was at the club the other day. And you know, yeah. I said wrong sort of fellows going in the government these days, Tubby Rollins. Yeah. yeah, which is which is admittedly one of the fun contradictions of the character. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 who, else, you know, who else do you think would be a Tory out of all the doctors? Uh, aside from 
the, aside from uh, Pertwee, yeah. Aside from John Pertwee. <laughs> Do you reckon would be? Uh, maybe. I think that's mainly because he's a crotchety old man. Mm. And we're just like, oh, he... Colin Baker would be like a militant right wing. So he would be the complete reverse, but he'd be murdering everyone that is a Tory. <laughs> so wait, wait, militant right wing or militant left wing? Uh, left wing, sorry, militant left wing. But well, assassinating gonna, all the right wingers. I was going to say, I don't remember Colin Baker agreeing with Davros at any point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hell of a story, though. Yeah. No, 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 Davros, you're right. It, Let's keep... I think it could just be Pertwee and Arnold. I think all the rest would definitely be Yeah. on the side of the people. Mm. <laughs> I'm just thinking of John Pertwee just going around and just like a, with his way, you know, working with the military and all that. <laughs> I, go, I suppose you then the, the next extension would be that Jodie Whittaker would be the, the Greenpeace MP. Yeah, probably. That, that sounds about right. We are so far off topic now, as usual. Yeah. Who is, yeah, which, which doctor would be most likely to vote Tory? Who knows? Who would be, that, that, um, who would be the ultimate Tory companion? Oh, uh, I, I, you know, actually, there's, um, what's his name on Twitter? Josh, Josh, Josh Snares. Oh, he's fab, isn't he? Yeah, go on. Oh, he's great. He, I think he has actually done a video on this. On like. Which companion um, would be a Tory? Yeah, and, we, and which doctors as well. Oh, I need to go and watch that. I bet that's great. Yeah, we're so far off Yeah, now. yeah, sorry. Go on, sum up practice and then let's talk about what we're going to do next week and let people get on with their lives. I um yeah I was I was actually going to ask you do you have any other provocative questions to ask about no, practice not really I, I I do think it's really quite a strong episode I feel like it's like a jigsaw puzzle that throws all its pieces down and then very smartly assembles them mm. um it's it's a great script I think it's really well acted I think the direction's fantastic. It's and I don't even think it's one of the standouts from series twelve. So and you know how strong I I, I really do like that season. So it gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah, uh, similar sort of feelings from me. They uh, Praxis is as I said, it has a it has such a frenetic pace, but it never feels like it's rushing. As far as I'm concerned, um, it has it gives you the feeling of being in this mystery and i always love it when a story makes you feel like you've crashed midway through yeah uh a doctor who story that's already underway um they're all doing something you, at the beginning aren't they they're all yeah so it yeah it doesn't show how they got into those positions it just says they're there now their investigation is already on the way come on which hasn't really been the chibnall approach has it a lot of them do start in the tardis with them kind of saying right you do that and you do that and... yeah it is quite it's a bit stephen moffaty in some in some senses uh, uh and especially because you've got them hopping between like madagascar peru hong kong <laughs> as well Where did although all you this know budget come from yeah and there's uh, Another good thing, it has this beautiful location work. Mm. Um, and it has this uh, really quite 
and it has like uh, if you like horror in your Doctor Who, it has some of the grisliest effects of this kind and this sound effect of as well this bony oh, yeah. kind of infection spreading up your neck and Remember into your eyes in the empty child where they took off the bone cracking effect now they just celebrate it yeah they're just like now nah, we're gonna go for that let's there, crack them there's only five million people watching it now let's go for it yeah let's do it now um, this has a great um, score as well the music's really good Mm, it's very dynamic and it, it, it there's a real rush to it that complements the story quite well and also the mo- the mystery with the birds is quite creepy because uh, you have these horrendous like killer birds that are r- rotting from the inside uh, and the discovery that you know they're being controlled by the plastic is quite is quite grim so Although there's poor a yon, bit of yon fella gets dispatched by the birds and summarily forgotten about by everybody <laughs> no one even mentions him again yeah he just dies and then he then he's gone the doctor's like no 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 um, there's a mystery to solve never mind the bystanders i uh i it, so yeah and you know it jumps from idea to idea i think it does a good job of it doesn't throw too many ideas at you, but it it starts with one idea and then just expands outwards quite well with that idea rather than starting with a clutter of ideas. Um, so, you know, in the sci-fi sense, it's quite fun. Um, it's like, you know, good, good mystery, good pacing to it. Would you say it's um, in like your top three of series 12? I think so. I think well, I, could, I think well, I could almost do your top three. Uh, I, 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 I'm te- I think it might be. I, it would probably would be number three if anything. Could it be next? Uh, Dear Data and Fugitive. Uh, yeah, probably with Dear Data at number one. Yeah, that, that I'd probably put Fugitive at number one, but I think my list would be pretty similar actually. Mm. I um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty confident. Praxis would be that, that or Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. Oh, I love that one as well. Mind you, I like Can You Hear Me and Ascension of the Sun and Spyfall. Man, that's a good year for me. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about next week? Oh, I hadn't even finished wrapping up Praxis. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, who cares what I think? I've covered my mouth. <laughs> I, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, uh, I, the only other thing I was really going to add was um, uh, I also think it's a good character piece for the leads. Um, Graham gets the nicest moment on the beach, um, but, you know, the Doctor... Yaz and Ryan also get to take proactive leads in their own investigation. And you get this really lovely um, love story in the middle of it, which we didn't touch upon too much in terms of what they actually talk about and what their issues are. But it's really nicely done. Uh, One of my favorite bits in that story is when they're rushing out to get into the TARDIS and they're kind of working through their domestic issues on the way to the TARDIS 
whilst they're being chased by a, uh, killer birds possessed by an alien alien plastic. And I was just like, that's as Doctor Who as it yeah. gets. <laughs> they're talking through their their marriage as they're being attacked by evil alien birds. Can I can I just alter that a little bit? I'd say that's as new who as it gets. Mm, yes, there's probably a, a good asterisk to put uh, onto that. I, I don't know. You'd have like a, a, a gay romance subplot between Nissa and Tegan in Ark of Infinity. But it would probably be much well, better for it. It, I mean, Tegan and Tegan and Nissa, it, it's canon now. <laughs> Why were you building that vibrator in the TARDIS, Nissa, in the visitation? I, I literally do not know. I didn't know that actually happened. Yeah, she does, yeah. Russell. <laughs> now you can say what we're talking about next week. Next week, um, since Joe and I, in one of our breaks, kind of stopped to um, talk about what are we actually going to talk about next week? And um, we we have noticed that we have primarily talked about stories uh, that have a, uh, generally across the board, have a bit of a reputation for being underdog stories. Um, How dare you? I have spoken about Time and the Rani, <laughs> The Chase, The Rings of Akaten, underdogs indeed. And, uh, you're, you're, and here was me thinking I was being polite. You look at that, uh, that Doctor Who magazine poll. They're all in the top ten. Yeah, in fact, in fact, you know, Timeless Children's right there at number one. It was the least. <laughs> I can't give a straight face when you say that. Oh, but um, we <laughs> we have decided that. You know, uh, for next week we're actually going to talk about one of the one of the great classics, uh, one of the consensus best stories. Because I think when we started doing this podcast, it was and it's been our attitude ever since. We're just like, what should which, which what should we do as our first story? And we're just like, oh, we, everybody always talks about like Genesis of the Daleks. Let's talk about that later. Um, let's talk about all the stuff people don't bother. One of our listeners actually wrote a review saying, "I knew this was a good cast." when you started with the rebus operation. I know. So that was a good a person of, Yeah, a person of impeccable taste. Uh, um, thanks, Alex. Uh, but yes, no, we're actually going to get into one of the unambiguous classics of Doctor Who, and that is the Caves of Androzani. Oh, or maybe we're going to watch it and just determine that it is, in fact, not a classic. Yeah, can you imagine? Um, I, I thought, can I just say, Verity did a cast on... Case of Case Androzani recently, where three of them savaged it and said they it was incredibly boring. And did you did you agree with them? I've not seen it for some time, so I will leave that to the next cast. Good idea, good idea. But well, I think if that kind of macho approach isn't for you, then you're not going to get a lot from it. Mm. Ah, but Peter Davison. Ah. Uh, he's great in that one. Mm. Okay. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Shall I count us down? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Three, two, one. 
Then, then I, I won't, won't be praised. praised. We did it. We did it. Well, we're just going to have to end the cast here. I know. We're not even going to talk about Case of Androzani anymore. That we're leaving you on a cliffhanger. Farewell, everybody. <laughs> Catch you. Have a good one. <laughs>